Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the strange life and times of paranormal investigator John Keel, the man who made the Mothman famous. In the wee hours of the morning, he was sitting there by himself, chewing on a candy bar and listening to Long John Nebel out of New York City, who was the original Art Bell of of that time. (laughs) And all of a sudden, this disc-shaped looking object kind of flew by his car and started heading for a ravine. And he thought maybe he kind of detected like a humming sound or something, but it looked close. And he said he was used to you know, early at nights, going in with a flashlight and investigating some spooky, spooky places. But he said that this really unnerved him and uh, he locked all the doors. This podcast is brought to you by Reverse Speech Radio, a podcast committed to telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Using the exact same technology as the CIA, they know because they trained them. Join hosts Christian Decadure and David John Oates every week and hear never-before-heard reversals, revealing the hidden truth. Catch politicians lying, climb inside the head of serial killers, even hear EVPs played in reverse. Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? All will be revealed on Reverse Speech Radio. New episodes drop every Thursday. Find out more at reversespeech.ca. Listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libson.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. Brent Rains is standing by to discuss the amazing, strange life and career of John Keel, the author, of course, of The Mothman Prophecies. And that's his account of his investigation to the alleged sightings in West Virginia of a huge winged creature called the Mothman back in 1967. Brent Rains has been investigating and researching UFOs since 1967. He's the author of Visitors from Hidden Realms and the editor of Alternative Perceptions magazine. Brent has traveled extensively across the United States and Canada, interviewing numerous witnesses and researchers. He's taken a comprehensive global and historical perspective on the UFOlogical landscape. He's also participated in Native American rituals and ceremonies, gaining valuable insights and information from his interactions with these wisdom keepers. Brent is able to make revealing comparisons between the interrelated experiences and disciplines of parapsychology, shamanism, Jungian archetypes, and ufology. His latest book is John Keel, The Man, The Myths, and The Ongoing Mysteries. Brent Rains, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing great, Richard. Thank you very much for having me on your program. And I want to thank Mark Itty of Nightlight for bringing us together. Yes, my pleasure. Mark's a great guy and a good friend. How fitting 
that the foreword to your book, John Keel, The Man, the Myths, and the Ongoing Mysteries, was written by Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Of course, we just lost Rosemary. She was also a, a good friend. Tell me about getting Rosemary to write the foreword. Well, um, she was, I met her at the Mothman Festival in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, back in uh, 2015. Of course, I'd already interviewed her once for my online uh, uh, show, um, for alternate perceptions magazine and you know i i thought a lot of her i and i met her in person and uh and one thing led to another and uh she helped me a lot with the book she had told me that she was uh had been thinking about writing a book on john keel herself because she had known john keel for quite a number of years uh but going back to i guess the 1980s and uh, they often met in new york city and and uh would have lunch and and uh, they would also uh, – she became a part of his 14 society that had meetings, uh, a lot of meetings there in the New York City area. And um, so anyway, um, I pitched this idea to her that uh, about, a, about a book, and she helped me a lot with it, uh, got me – you know, I did an interview with her that I used in the, the book, and of course she wrote the foreword. Um, she was originally going to publish it herself, but uh, with her – her illness, she realized that uh, it wasn't going to to work out for the book to actually get done, and part of that was me dragging my feet toward the last of it there. And I, she said that I could, you know, self-publish, go ahead and self-publish if I felt it was ready. And, you know, she really, I mean, she just, uh, when it came out on Amazon and on July 14th, she she passed away early morning, July 19th. I don't know if she ever knew I got the book published or not, but uh, I was going to be talking at a couple of conferences or events. Uh, one was the Alien Expo here in Knoxville, Tennessee in August, and of course the upcoming Mothman Festival this coming weekend. So I, you know, but she helped me tremendously, uh, corrected a bunch of errors that I had <laughs> and uh, uh, made a lot of suggestions, you know, because she knew Keel, she knew other people uh, that I should also go ahead and include in interviews like Michael Grosso. And uh, and there's just a number of people who were able to shed more light on, on Keel and how he influenced their lives. And so it's it's about, you know, it's a, it's a biography, but it's also about how he influenced a lot of people in the in the research field and, and the ongoing research and studies that, uh, you know, are contributing to a lot of uh, his Keelian ideas. If uh, if Keel had been alive in this day and time, with the, the focus that's coming on to uh, consciousness and the uh, uh, quantum physics and things, uh, I think the 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 people in the field would have been you know, a little more receptive than they were back in the late 60s and right. early 70s. Right. The UFO world is finally catching up to John Keel and that whole idea of ultra-terrestrials and other explanations. Uh, and I want to obviously come back to John Keel, the subject of your new book. But I just want to take a moment and talk about your early days and your parents, who you acknowledge in the book. What a remarkably supportive parents you had uh, driving you to Toronto so that you could meet a contactee back when you were, what, 12, 13, 14 years old? How remarkable. Uh, well, let's see. I started out in January 1967 actually deciding, I think I'll be a researcher. And so uh, I was 14 at the time. I actually was interested in it when I was 13, you know, and they had the sightings uh, back in 66, like in March, the 
Michigan sightings, but of course they had sightings all over the country. We had sightings up in Maine, where I'm originally from. Uh, a guy up in Bangor actually fired uh, a thing. He said that was uh, disc shaped with a dome on top, metallic, and he could hear the bullets pinging off the uh, the surface. Um, and so we had some pretty interesting sightings ourselves. Uh, but uh, the whole nation at that time was. Um, you know, the press was was filled with stories from coast to coast. It was a very vac- very active time. But yeah, my my uh, mom and dad, uh, even though my mom thought it was all kind of crazy, uh, they were they were quite supportive. Uh, and my dad would we'd start out, you know, on on weekends, you know, the Sunday afternoon drive. And sometimes um, my father was an accordion player. And uh, one day we just we went on a, a trip. We ended up in Chicago uh, from Maine. Uh, he wanted to stop at a, an accordion uh, place and uh, talk with him, you know. So, so one time he drove me all the way to Sistersville, West Virginia, um, which was kind of unexpected, just because I had mentioned that one of John Keel's articles had described how they were seeing um, all kinds of UFOs at one time down there. And uh, of course, I didn't have any any real information to go on. Um, we pulled up on the hillside, and I remember the article said that somebody said they were seeing them like fireflies. Well. I think I did see some some lightning bugs at the time, but that was about <laughs> it. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the lady in Toronto, uh, Joan Howard was her name, and uh, she was originally from England, claimed to be a mediumistic person, uh, had experiences going back to childhood, and um, and I had read about her in the Aquarian Revelations back in a 1971 issue written by Brad Steiger. Yes, and so. Uh, you know, that was where I located, it only had like two pages devoted to her, I think. Uh, the rest was on a, another major case that Brad Steiger had been involved with, uh, with some other Canadian people. But it was interesting because she claimed her contact with the UFOs began in July 1968. And, and that was an active time. There was a, quite a wave of sightings in Canada back, back at that time. And that's when she claimed that uh, this alien presence and started communicating with her in kind of a telepathic manner and she would uh she began taking messages down so uh it was interesting to go and and meet her and her husband uh walter who was who was actually from west virginia and had a few spooky tales of his own hmm. <laughs> so that so that was my first uh, actual first-hand experience uh interviewing someone who was a contact experiencer up in toronto one of the things that I learned from reading your book is, you know, how involved what what I know about the Mothman prophecies and the, and 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 what happened down there from the movie, and a little bit from John Keel. But John Keel, you, you quote him saying that there was enough going on down there to fill six books, and that his his book barely scratched the surface. Yeah, he wrote that to me after I had you know explained to him about how I'd been down there. Uh, in May of 1976, nearly 10 years after you know he started looking into it, and uh, I had found out from one of the witnesses, Linda Scarberry, that um, she had had, she said, offhand, hundreds of sightings. And I said, hundreds, <laughs> you know. And uh, she even described one time how um, she looked out an apartment window uh, down in Point Pleasant where she was staying, and. Uh, saw the Mothman outside, you know, about a, just a few feet face to face. And she described this protruding, glowing red eyes. Uh, and she says, uh, it always, 
you know, you wish you could communicate with it, but you're always so scared when you see the this creature that uh, you just uh, are speechless, kind of paralyzed. It was, you know, there was so many sightings. There was even a guy who came over from, from Sweden back in uh, 1969 and 1970 who spent several weeks down there and uh, actually had intended, you know, he... He didn't really know what to expect. He'd read about, uh, you know, some of what Keel had written about the, the Mothman. And uh, this was, he went down there and years before the Mothman Prophecies book came out. And he was uh, quite intrigued by what he found. He talked with about 30 people. And he said the thing that really always stood out was the shining hypnotic eyes, as they call them, that uh, uh, the people were all traumatized. He talked with family members who would tell him that uh, you know these people have are not the same as they were before the experience and he uh, he said that he had quit smoking quite some time before but uh, these people were all smoking and, and, and nervous when they would you know tell a story and it got him to where he <laughs> he started smoking again and uh, I got to meet uh, as I said Linda Skyberry and her uh, mom and dad and I remember uh, her mom telling telling me and a friend of mine that uh, uh, they had never heard of, of these type of things, UFOs and all this, uh, prior to uh, her daughter and her daughter's husband at the time, Roger Skyberry, and another couple having the experience with the, the Mothman at the uh, what they call the TNT area, uh, which was a uh, World War II ammunition storage facility north several miles north of uh, point pleasant off of uh, route 62 and uh, they had this experience where suddenly they saw this tall six seven foot tall man-like figure but with wings and and they noticed these shining red eyes and it uh they start they got in the the uh car that was driven by roger skyberry and uh he claimed that he hit it down 62 at about 100 miles an hour trying to get away and the thing hovered over the the automobile, they could see a, a wing flapping on one side and a, a wing on the other side, so it was right over the, the top of their car. And uh, they went straight to the uh, police in Portsmouth and reported what had happened. And uh, that was the that was the beginning, and pretty soon it was in the papers, and uh, uh, a lot of other reports were coming in. Uh, Keel visited the area soon afterwards, and uh, he made a total of five visits altogether over the years. And... Uh, investigating and he worked with a local reporter by the name of Mary Heyer who uh, also was uh, found out was pretty psychic herself and she seemed like a number of the people in that area to have uh, kind of a natural psychic ability um, as Rosemary Galley in the forward says that a lot of these people seem to be wired in such a way she was one herself and she always felt that although you know Keel wrote and talked about a lot of these people being wired differently, being for some reason prone to these experiences of the paranormal and such that uh, he himself was too. Right. And, well, he had, uh, yeah, he had some interesting encounters down there when he went down, as you say, in December of 66, along with his filmmaker uh, friend, uh, Dan Drayson, who you tracked down. Uh, talk to me about, before we get into Keel's encounters down there, your conversations with Dan Drayson and his own interesting sightings. Right, he had um, he had been interested in the paranormal and such for quite a number of years, and he met uh, he saw something in well a friend of his had seen uh, 
I think, a story in the paper that Keel was going to be doing a talk. And so he went and uh, attended the talk, got to talk with him. And and during that year of 1967, he actually went down to Point Pleasant with Keel and got to know Mary Heyer and, and many of the other uh, many of the Mothman experiences, UFO experiences in Point Pleasant and the surrounding area. And he was planning to do a, uh, you know, he was a documentary producer, and he was planning to do a documentary for PBS on the situation. And, and PBS was initially interested, and then for some reason they they decided they didn't want to invest the money in the project. And what a shame. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I... I had been kind of on the lookout for Dan Drazen uh, ever since I read about him in the Mothman Prophecies. He's mentioned several times. And uh, then this crop circle uh, investigator from uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, Nancy Talbert, um, had a video of a Dan Drazen who uh, went to the Netherlands to uh, to do some experiments with a guy who was a psychic medium and was involved in the, you know, he could predict when crop circles were going to appear, and he had some UFO sightings. And and uh, anyway, he wanted to actually, since he you know had a um, a good grasp of knowledge on photography and, and how everything would work, that uh, he would take some pictures and see if he could get these paranormal images that a lot of people, including Nancy, claimed that they had witnessed him producing on film and make sure that no trickery was involved. And uh, he had a lot of good controls in the uh, process, but as it turned out, uh, they got he got images. Uh, one of a face of a person he believed was uh, an early EVP and electronic voice phenomena ex- uh, researcher, and uh, and he couldn't explain how how these images got on there. So I wrote Nancy and I says, "Hey, uh, is this the same Dan Drazen who's mentioned in?" Uh, Mothman prophecies, and she said she had no idea, but she gave me his uh, email address, and and I wrote him, and sure, lo and behold, it was the same guy now living out in uh, California, and still busy doing documentaries, hmm. and and one of the documentaries he was doing is uh, one that's now been now is available on YouTube called Calling Earth, and it's about EVP and ITC, you know the the uh, paranormal voices and images. Uh, which he, I think it's over an hour long, and he travels all across the United States and into other countries uh, investigating these reports. And uh, he was initially kind of quite skeptical, but he said he delved into it. And of course, this again is something that, uh, you know, Keel was quite interested in too, uh, uh, this this kind of phenomena, paranormal. Um, but uh, he says that it wasn't just Keel that really drew him to uh, actually get engaged in that process but he said that he had seen a lot of strange things when he was in in west virginia back in the 60s uh he actually was present and it's described in the mothman prophecies when a they saw a a ufo i mean it was really to them they couldn't identify it and it went behind a cloud and they're all waiting for it to come out the other side and he said when it did suddenly instead of a ufo it was a uh, a regular prop airplane and it said they were all like scratching their heads, you know, and and uh, John Keel was, you know, very, very deep into aviation and became a pilot himself. And uh, <clears throat> what they saw going to the cloud and then what came out of it <laughs> uh, was completely opposite. And they were always kind of puzzled by that. And so that's in the Mothman prophecies. And he recounted that story and, and uh, some others, which are 
which are in the book. And and Keel's own experiences while down there, the, you know, the strange dancing lights that seem to follow his flashlight. Yeah, he would, you know, flash like Morse, Morse code and um, Mary Heyer and I think other people uh, were with him as well when some of this happened. And he talked about uh, on the Ohio River, he'd be up on a hilltop and he could see on the Ohio River these, these uh, uh, boats going along, uh, barges or whatever, and and uh, the riverboat men would shine searchlights at these strange lights, and they would jump out of the way. And so he began to do it himself, and he went down one day to uh, to talk to some of them and said, oh, yeah, we've been doing that for quite some time, you know. And um, and then one, one night uh, in April of 1967, he's – Mary Heyer had deserted him. It was uh, – in the wee hours of the morning, he was sitting there by himself, uh, chewing on a candy bar and listening to uh, uh, Long John Nebel out of New York City, who was the original Art Bell of, of that time. Hmm. <laughs> and and uh, all of a sudden, this uh, disc-shaped looking object kind of flew by his car and started heading for a ravine. And... Uh, he thought maybe he kind of detected like a humming sound or something, uh, but it looked close. And he said he was used to, you know, early at nights uh, going in with a flashlight and investigating some spooky, spooky places. But he said that this really unnerved him and uh, he locked all the doors and and uh, nervously waited to see what would happen next. And uh, nothing did. But... Uh, the next day, um, he had the police come and uh, visit the area. And uh, while they were waiting, and the one of the, the police cars, the radio was actually turned off, but all of a sudden this gibberish uh, voice came through the radio that sounded like a phonograph record at high speed. And one of the officers said, Wow, that's the same thing that came over my speakers when I was interviewing those four kids in the point uh, in the TNT area that had just seen that thing called Mothman. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, Keel had noticed a lot of strange radio anomalies uh, occurring around these active areas too. And uh, so. Um, he, wherever he went, he did try to, you know, establish a, a point where he could observe the phenomena himself. He called it a window area where he felt that uh, there was a higher than normal amount of activity that was isolated to a certain area. And he thought instead of being extraterrestrial, it was more environmental and, and that might involve uh, like a portal to another dimension or something and thus the term ultra-terrestrial, which... Um, Actually, was a term that uh, was coined, I understand, originally by Ivan T. Sanderson, who was a good friend of, of John Keel, a, a Scottish-born uh, zoologist who also was interested in UFOs and uh, Bigfoot phenomena and had written some books and articles. You mentioned Bigfoot, but there were also Bigfoot sightings happening around the same time as, as the Mothman sightings, weren't there? Yeah, at the time, there was uh, Bigfoot and kind of like, a, I understand, like a headless man and, of course, the Mothman. And Keel had interviewed, uh, I think, a little over 100 witnesses to these various phenomena, cryptid-type phenomena, we call it today. And and they, um, about half of them, he noticed, had a, uh, a proneness, uh, proclivity for paranormal experiences as well. 
uh, precognition and things and poltergeist manifestations. Uh, and this was something that this uh, uh, gentleman from, from Sweden who came over in 69 and 70, Aki Fresen, and interviewed about 30 uh, Mothman witnesses. And he noticed a number of – he mentioned a number of cases where uh, after the initial encounter, the, their homes erupted with poltergeist activity. And um, so again and again, there was the uh, the strange anomalous activity involving the paranormal and and these things. And and Keel had described a uh, a case where uh, he had become aware of in in New York State of a a person who said they had seen a, a Bigfoot, for example, and it reached down and grabbed the hand of another Bigfoot and pulled it up out of the ground. And he said. Obviously, again, that's some sort of paraphysical, paranormal-type uh, component to that event. And um, they've had there have been cases where people have seen Bigfoot and they just vanished into thin air and um, a lot of peculiar aspects to them. Um, you mentioned this poltergeist activity, and uh, one of the witnesses... She um, didn't she wake up in a in a hospital or something. She had unexplained scars on her legs and her arms, and and this was after. Yeah, scratches. Uh, that's yeah. the that's the one I had met when in when in West Virginia back ah. in '76. Uh, Linda Skyberry, and uh, that said she'd had so many different experiences. You know, since that initial one, it seemed like it haunted her. And uh, when people, you know, mentioned, she'd get very scared, but she said whenever anybody mentioned about going back to the TNT area, she would she would go. And so she was one of the people, along with Mary Hire, that returned with this Aki Fresen, Fresen, Fresen <clears throat> from Sweden uh, when he would go there and, uh, you know, investigate. And, and there were some real peculiar things about this strange bird. Um, originally, they called it simply the bird, and then I... Uh, a newspaper man, uh, Batman was popular, so he called it the Mothman, and that kind of caught on, um, and that's where the Mothman name came from. But uh, there were uh, also there was the people who reported that the creature would just spread its wings out, and then it would just sort of, without flapping its wings, just shoot up in the air. When I was in uh, Point Pleasant. Back in '76, I talked with a Virginia Thomas who said she had, you know, and she's mentioned in uh, Keel's uh, *Strange Creatures from Time and Space* and I believe *Mothman Prophecies* as well. And she told me how she had seen this humanoid form, grayish colored, that was about six, seven feet. This was in the daytime, and uh, her eyes became fixed on it. Again, it was like this trance thing. She couldn't take her eyes off it, and uh, except, you know, there was no eyes that she was really focused on. It was just this being and her ears were popping and she said it ran across this field like a robot, which made her think later, I mean, like lightning, which made her think it was like a robot later. Right, right. And said it made a sound like a broken fan belt. And uh, Keel had noticed, had noted in, um, I know in Strange Creatures, which was published in 1970, is really his first book on all this this stuff, although Operation Trojan Horse came a little later, and that, that's the one most people think of. Mm -hmm. But um, there were two other people that, that Keel had interviewed who said that they had heard, like as the creature was flying over their heads, uh, kind of a, a mechanical type sound. Yes. So, 
you know, it's some very peculiar, anomalous details that are associated with some of these encounters. Well, the, right. There's the, the case of, was it Faye Dewitt who had, uh, after encountering this creature, had precognitive ability? Yeah, there were a number of people. Uh, in fact, the woman I just mentioned, she had also was one of them that had foreseen what later they realized was, you know, the collapse of the Silver Bridge, the, that some tragedy had occurred on the Ohio. And she also told me about she had once foreseen a uh, deadly explosion at a a fire at a, a prison in Point Pleasant, I mean a jail, a jail in Point Pleasant where several people had died in the fire. And um, yeah, the Faye also uh, described this. There have been quite a number of the Mothman witnesses who had described like precognitive, prophetic type dreams and such. This strange winged creature, whatever it was, Birdman, the Mothman, not isolated to to this one particular period in West Virginia. It's this is something else I didn't know. I mean it's been it's been seen many other places. Right. Back in the early I believe the early nineties, um, you know, I had written for my magazines some of the things that I had come across in West Virginia myself and, and you know, Keel mentioned he could have written six other six other volumes, uh, but there just wasn't a market for it at the time. And um there, you know, it was it just he said that at that point, he just was no longer that interested in the Mothman because this thing really has, you know, he's been received hundreds of reports from around the world. And uh, it was actually pretty common, he found out. And in and, and that time, you know, he not, he not only was in West Virginia, but he went through a total of 20 states, which was following up on witnesses and their stories. He came across over 200 contactees contact experiences and people with missing time. And at the time, the UFO community wasn't really that interested in, in the contact abduction phenomena. In fact, one major organization, NICAP, out of Washington, D.C., that was started by a major Donald Kehoe, who was a former Marine, and uh, didn't want to have anything to do with such reports because he felt that it was just a lot of charlatans or people with psychological disorders. Uh, but Keel disagreed. He he had written an article back in early 67 called Never Mind the Saucer, uh, Did You See the Guys Who Were dri Driving? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a few weeks later, he gets called by the editor of this magazine. He goes into the guy's office and he waves his hand and says, I got some mail for you. And there was like six mailbags over in a corner of the office. And he said he had thousands of letters and uh, they were people who had had describing contacts and missing time and all these forbidden fruits that a lot of the mainstream didn't want to deal with at that time. So ahead of his time. Right, because after 1987, you know, you had Bud Hopkins and Whitley Strieber came mm -hmm. out with their books, and suddenly they started describing getting thousands of letters and started, you know, the Communion Foundation with, with Strieber and then the Intruders Foundation with Bud Hopkins, and uh, all these support groups for these people started popping up not just here in the United States, but Britain and elsewhere. And uh, and some of them still exist. So, I mean, it's it's um, it took time for uh, people to catch up with where Akil was, was coming from. <laughs> More of my conversation with Brent Rains as we discuss The Mothman and the life of John Keel when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Ancient Life Oil is a trusted name for CBD oil. High-quality CBD helping you reach your ideal well-being. I've been taking an eyedropper full of Ancient Life Oil CBD for several months. And I can tell you this is the real deal, folks. The real oil. Now, here's some exciting news. This oil has no psychoactive effect, and it won't 
get you high. And this product is also legal in all 50 states. When you're healthy, you're happy. And the truth about this wonderful plant is that it wants to give back to mankind. Life, longevity, and happiness. It's the purest, highest grade available of non-psychoactive CBD oil. You know, there are many companies out there peddling an inferior product that won't benefit you the way that you might expect. I'm excited for you to try Ancient Life Oil and see what your own personal results are. I hope you're as amazed as I am with this wonderful extracted oil that's come from one of the most giving plants. Big relief and a little bottle, CBD oil from ancientlifeoil.com. reality richard is a very strong and handsome man just not in our reality although i heard somebody passing him in the hall the other day and it was good good a handsome man richard is i made that up conspiracy unlimited with richard serrett brent rains the author of john keel the man the myths and the ongoing mysteries is here I got to ask you, you you mentioned the Silver Bridge uh, collapse in December of 67. And this is an amazing story, again, that I was not familiar with. And this had to do with the, um, I guess it was the day that the, the bridge collapsed and, and Keel received a, a visitor at his apartment, someone he hadn't seen for several years, someone who was a very good friend. Tell me about his visit from Joe Woodvine. Yeah, um... The story is, and and I was quite surprised to find this out. It was someone who knew Keel quite well, and he even shared the uh, the letter from Keel describing this. Where you know he at the time it happened, December fifteenth, nineteen sixty seven. Keel had been hearing something was going to happen, something major, and there had been all these dreams, and so he was had the TV turned on, waiting for some news or something. He thought it was going to be a power blackout, but then this broadcast came over telling about a collapse of a bridge on the Ohio River, and Keel thought, man, that uh, the Silver Bridge from Point Pleasant is on the Ohio River, and uh, it took him several hours to be able to get a call through because the, the phone lines were all uh, down for a while, but... Uh, Eventually, he got through to Mary Heyer, and she commented to him, you know, it was early in the morning, and it was a nightmare. 46 people, you know, had ended up dying, and uh, she said that it was just like her dream, that uh, there was the Christmas packages floating on the Ohio River. And anyway, at that, that particular day, which for Keel, one of the most significant days of all in his investigations and, and, and where it led him, he had this visitor for several hours. In fact, they went out to eat. They uh, went to a, uh, a UFO meeting, a talk that uh, James Mosley was giving in, in Manhattan that, that same evening. And uh, everything seemed normal. I mean, he hadn't seen the guy in a while. And um, in fact, he had been his best man at the guy's wedding back, I think, in 1950. And uh, so he knew him well. And he knocked on his door, came into his apartment. Everything seemed normal. And um, a couple of years later, he's at Macy's and he uh, comments to this woman, uh, says, I, I saw your husband. And everything was, you know, okay until he said when he saw the husband. And it was, you know, in 1967, which she said, well, he passed away in July 1965, a heart attack. And Keel was like, what are you, you sure? And she got kind of irritated and said, John, don't you think I, I would know I was there? Meanwhile, he'd spent and, the entire afternoon with his old friend. 
Yeah, uh, afternoon, I think part of an evening, you know. <laughs> the guy that supplied me the, the copy of the letter that Keel wrote to him and was there said that, you know, uh, Keel said it was his friend. He said he was a big, tall guy with a powerful handshake. And I've tried to, you know, get with the old timers who were left in the field, if anybody might have been at that Mosley talk. And so, so far, no success. But I thought, uh, you know, it would be something to actually have some pictures because I know anytime there's a talk, people are taking pictures, you know. Right. And, and this was Jim Mosley, who was quite popular in the UFO field. And um, I also uh, have been in touch with um, John and uh, Tim Frick, who are uh, very involved in the Mothman festival and they often dress up as the men in black at these events and they had talked with keel back in 2013 when keel came to the mothman festival made this one-time appearance and they spent about eight hours with him and uh they talked with him about that and uh i think it was john that asked him uh wow that's that's like you know a major event what do you think about it and uh keel's response was i don't think about it much it uh it gives me a headache to do so. Hmm. <laughs> and uh, he told my informant that it had caused him sleepless nights. It was very disturbing to him. You know, he, he couldn't figure it out. But he felt it was a part of the phenomenon, but that, it, you know, it was best to leave it out of the story, out of the Mothman prophecies, which I, when I found out about it, I thought, mm, it's going to stop right here. We're going to put it in. <laughs> right, right. I'm glad you did. But it turns out he had a lifetime of these strange, I mean, going back to, you know, his days in, in uh, just living outside Buffalo, uh, New York, uh, I think he was seven. There was kind of a strange, was it a Bigfoot encounter? Well, when he was seven, he, um, they were out riding at night. His, uh, his mother and uh, his stepfather was driving the, the automobile. And at first I thought it was a barn on fire. And uh, then it rose up into the sky and it was this big round globe. And then suddenly it just took off. And so at age seven was that first experience when he was a young man in his 20s in 1954 over in Egypt. He saw another one, a disc-shaped domed object, classic saucer, above the Aswan Dam in the upper Nile. But uh, early on, he they had like a poltergeist at uh, his grandparents' farmhouse, and he used to rap on the wall. It would rap back to him. And uh, when he was 10, there was... Uh, neighbors that were describing like a gorilla crossing the road <laughs> you know, so. right that was the encounter i was referring to he was 10 <clears throat> okay yes and then uh, when he was 18 he he'd moved to new york city hitchhiked actually and uh when he was 17 with 75 cents in his pocket <laughs> and uh he wanted to make his mark on the literary world because for a number of years he'd been writing a weekly column for the perry herald out of perry new york and he was only 14 at the beginning, and he was making $2 a week. So I guess, you know, he was feeling quite encouraged, and he liked to write. Um, and he liked to read a lot. He was a he described himself as a reading machine, and he read on all kinds of things. And uh, But in at age 18, he had the classic illumination experience. Uh, he had a room off of Times Square, and the room became filled with this indescribable pinkish light. And... Uh, his mind became flooded with a turn of information. It was like he knew the secrets to the universe. By the time morning rolled around and he got up, uh, it was all sort of a, a vague memory of what, what it was in his head earlier, and he felt it was something downloaded to his subconscious. But I think all these early experiences kind of, uh, in a way, helped prepare him for the journey ahead that he would he would follow, you know, the... <laughs> to explore the unexplained and using his writing ability to communicate 
what he learned along the way. Didn't he advise you and, and others to study comparative religion and demonology in order to understand what was going on? Yeah, he uh, recommended I read a book by a, a parapsychologist named Terrell, and it was about apparitions. In fact, that was the title of the book, Apparitions. And um, and then, too, he recommended studying uh, uh, medical reports, uh, uh, you know, the uh, visionary um, type phenomena, religious visionary type phenomena, which he felt the contact he experienced was a variation of. And uh, I remember thinking at the time, you know, I was I was in my late teens and I thought, boy, this this sounds like college stuff here. you know. <laughs> and uh, but um, yeah, and he he uh, did think that a lot of uh, things kind of were, even though he was a lifelong atheist and he had a very skeptical attitude about uh, many things occult and supernatural, he he came to believe that there was definitely something to it. And, uh, you know, I asked him one time on the phone, I says, what about the angel reports? You know, these Marian apparitions, which he wrote quite a bit about uh, in Operation Trojanos. And he noted, um, as have others like Jacques Valley, that there was a lot of similarities between a contact experience and, and these Marian apparitions. And he says, uh, yeah, I said, I, uh, uh, I just, you know, feel that in the end they, they just, uh, kind of turn sour and that, uh, that they, that this, you know, intelligence, this interactive intelligence doesn't have uh, our best interests at heart. Um, and I was thinking what a difference from his point of view, others, you know, like, having an old friend, realizing that an old friend had come back from the dead at a time when he was trying to put these major pieces from this investigation related to Point Pleasant were coming together. And uh, for a lot of people, that would have been comforting. But for Keel, it was uh, it was more than he could handle, you know, and he had this very dark view of it. Yes, it and, was he, whoever or whatever that was, it was there to put him off his game, get him off the track, perhaps. Well, I think that's the way he... He perceived it, you know, and uh, I, I, you know, there is this, this trickster element to a lot of these cases. Still, I want to believe that myself. I want to, I want to still hold on to the fact that there's some, some good here too. You know, that we're not just at the, the bottom of this uh, cosmic, uh, interdimensional barrel, and we're just being picked on all the time. But uh, Keel, you know, he felt that uh, things were looking pretty, pretty dismal. Uh, and uh, and he well, didn't he ultimately yeah. conclude that what well, what did he ultimately conclude in terms of the UFO ET phenomena? He called them elementals, didn't he? Yeah, he he fell back on the you know uh, the occult terminology, elementals. Uh, these, uh, in fact, uh, Rosemary Guiley, uh, she had come to similar conclusions. To her, they were related to the jinn, the Muslim jinn, who were. Um, Part of this, this you know, spirit world, uh, and 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 other researchers like Anne Truffle and uh, Gordon Crichton of the English Flying Saucer Review also noted similarities between gen reports and alien contact because of all the spiritual psychic components that that arose from it, and and some of the I think the you know there was a lot of similarities. There was the um, the missing time, uh, how they could appear and disappear and travel a great distance in a short period of time, and. And uh, they could also uh, abduct and, and do, like, examinations on people. Um, 
all of which kind of fit into the the gen profile. In fact, Rosemary Guiley told me that she thought some of the events at Point Pleasant were gen related, and she even used a, um, you know, the electronic communications process, the you know Frank's box, the uh, ghost box right. that uh, she was quite well versed in, and she had several several of her own. And uh, I was telling her how I had uh, used the ghost box, and and one time I asked this, you know, this. You know, whoever was out there, uh, I asked, "Are you um, other other gin? Some of these UFO beings? Are some of these UFO beings actually the gin?" And immediately, a voice came back and said, "You're an alien." <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, a male voice. And you know, I had some experiences myself with uh, the ghost box. In fact, Keel, John Keel, came through a number of times. Oh, is that right? Now, now, Keel would have said, you know, in the day when he was investigating and, and writing in the, about the ultra-terrestrials, his conclusion would have been that uh, that's just them impersonating somebody. Because he had a case uh, that he described of a friend who had recordings of from a medium. And uh, the guy believed that it was uh, this dead personality and said it sounded just like him. It had his memories. But uh, Keel said, yeah, but they can – they can pretend to be whoever they want. They're familiars, yeah. Familiars, yeah. You know, they, and so <clears throat> I can't say for sure, uh, but I know that in my interactions with the John Keel on the Ghost Box, that uh, he brought up a number of things that were familiar to John Keel, um, and tended to kind of reflect, I think, different things that were part of Keel's personality, uh, but. Uh, you know, one of the things was the very first letter I got from Keel in 1969. Uh, he mentioned that he was putting together a book on an encyclopedia on monsters. He often, instead of calling cryptozoology, he often talked about monsters. Mm -hmm. And this one time we got John Keel twice at this uh, site that we're investigating. And uh, he was asked about Bigfoot and this voice said monsters. And... I said, well, that fits exactly with mm -hmm. uh, what Keel would have said, you know. And uh, uh, it's just some of this stuff was just really puzzling. I, you know, can't say where it comes from, but, it, you know, he felt that it came, a lot of these things came through the electromagnetic spectrum. He hypothesized about a thing he called the super spectrum, um, which, you know, could things could appear and disappear. It could alter physical matter. It could create temporary physical forms uh, like uh, in the east they would call tulpas or whatever yes yes manifestations and of the mind manifestations of the mind or, or quantum physics of some kind and and very peculiar <laughs> type apparitional phenomena and it could be seen physical one moment and then be gone the next i also believe that it kind of reads the mind i know that right after keel passed away a few months afterwards in my first ghost box experience i i was sitting in this room and uh, the guy that was running the session asked my my wife if she wanted to contact her you know her brother because apparently he came through previously so she said yes and i'm sitting there i didn't say anything i just quietly thinking john keel you know can you come through <clears throat> and i didn't even realize what had happened until later i played the audio back and after we had actually gotten john keel responses and uh this voice, when he was her brother was asked to come through, this voice said, "Keel, Johnny." Uh huh. Yeah. Did know, it sound then, like him? 
Well, um, sometimes with the the the, the messages because it's on scan, the the voices are a little distorted. Now some of them actually sounded kind of kind of like Keel. They did. You have to hit it just right. And uh, I played some of this for Dan Drazen, and he thought it sounded. Uh, one that he listened to sounded like Keel to him. Mm, amazing. Um, amazing. So it's, what can I say? <laughs> well, the mysteries continue. And uh, of course, that's part of the uh, the title of the book. John A. Keel, The Man, The Myths, and The Ongoing Mysteries. And they are ongoing. Uh, Brent, thank you so much for this. And how do folks get a copy of the book? Well, it's on Amazon. Um uh, key in john a keel the man the myths and the ongoing mysteries and they'll find it and um, also uh, have an online magazine ap magazine.info and uh, they'll also see it there and uh, anyway thank you very much uh, richard for for having me on and giving me the opportunity to you know explore these mysteries with you okay before i dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs I'll be back with some news about an upcoming episode. People are starting to finally discover my strange planet shop, and they are loving the gear. The Mayan calendar design seems to be very popular right now, and it's beautiful if I do say so myself. Rick Forgus from Atomic Werewolf Studios in Phoenix has done an absolutely amazing job with all of the designs. The Nazca Lines design is also fantastic, but I think my favorite right now is the Time to Redefine Reality t-shirt. But there's so much more than tees. There's mugs and leggings and tote bags and sweatshirts and hoodies and new designs and products arriving every week. You've got to check it out. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Strange Planet Shop button at the bottom of the page. Strangeplanet.ca. It's a strange planet. Grab the gear. Take the journey. Coming up next time, the gods of the Bible. The scroll of Jeremiah is the scroll where God, you know, pleads with Israel to, to let go of its ways because Israel is, you know, there's murder, there's uh, the shedding of innocent blood, the, the widows, uh, the orphans are robbed, all kinds of injustice in the land. But above all, God says, the thing is they're worshipping these beings. And that is the main thing that, that he's not pleased with. And archaeologists have found a lot of these idols inside of the homes of Hebrews in the Holy Land from the first temple period. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.